great singing. Obviously, you can be seated. And uh, we just want to welcome our Northridge campus, our Cactus campus, and then our chapel next door. And then uh, in these strange times, so many of you worshiping with us still online. We're all one body as we now uh, go into our time in the Word. Uh, this is the first time that I have been preaching this year. Of course, we only had one Sunday before that this year, so not too bad. Uh, but because of that, I want to, before I pray, take care of a couple housekeeping issues. Now, whenever you hear housekeeping issues, you think, uh-oh, what's he gonna say? These are really positive housekeeping issues that I wanna encourage you with and let you know kind of what's coming down the pike for your church. Uh, the first housekeeping issue is uh, a quick update on our year-end giving. If you remember in December, we had uh, asked you not just to consider your church with year-end giving, but also we set this huge, audacious goal to give a million bucks to low-income kids who don't have computers in the city of Phoenix. And so many of you jumped on that and, and supported that. And though we're gonna give you the raw numbers all next week, we're still tabulating them, here's what we know so far. Not only did you guys support your church to, to the full with year-end giving in December, but we well exceeded a million dollars for the kids that needed computers, yep. And, and when I say well exceeded, I mean, it's just, it's just more than we had expected. So we're now praying and talking with the board on, hey, what do we do with the more? Uh, you know, and there's some options before us, but uh, it just shows, goes to show once again that even in dire times, the, the generosity, the faith, the love of God's people is unstoppable. So again, in a good way, not a prideful way, I'm so proud uh, of you guys and, and all that you've done to love God and to love other people. Now there's a, a second housekeeping issue that I wanna communicate to you as well that has to do with something we unveiled last fall called our, our Pull Together to Go Further vision. If you remember last fall, in the, you know, in the height of this pandemic, we were using this time to ask God, you know, what do you want from us? What do you want from us as a church? Where, where do you want us to go, say, for the next decade? Uh, and, and we heard some pretty clear things from him. And we developed that little catchphrase that kind of encapsulates our vision, and that is to pull together to go further. You remember the pull together part. We felt that now is a time to be more intergenerational in the way that we do ministry, setting the table for the next 10, 20, 30 years, pulling generations together. So we decided last fall to pull the venue across this campus, which was a lot of young families, into the worship center here and bring the two congregations together, which is why you have Allie and Derek up here and Ethan and a lot of our younger worship leaders leading us. And then simultaneously, we decided to, on the other campuses, to pull Saturday night into Sunday morning, hence pull together, because Saturday night tended to be a younger demographic as well. And so we're pulling groups together, empowering a lot of our younger leaders here, again, to have a more intergenerational approach. That required us to go to three services now on Sunday that most of you are aware of, 8, 9.45, and 11.30, and that was the pull together piece. But we were very aware during that time that once the pandemic is over, whatever the new normal is, that we're going to have space problems with that. 
In other words, we're gonna fill up rather quickly again, especially as we reach lost people. And so that's the go further piece that we shared with you last fall. We were uh, gonna be doing two to four additional multi-sites. We didn't set a timeline, but sooner than later to again expand uh, our footprint as a church throughout the valley here. And so we're announcing today, uh, because we've been feverishly working behind the scenes on this stuff, and again, we've, we always want this to be God-driven, uh, we're announcing today uh, that the nine days ago we formed SBC Fountain Hills as our next campus. Yep, you can clap for that. Now, you gotta love church people. Some of you aren't clapping. Let me help you clap with this. So here's why this is important. We decided early on that this would be God-driven and, and, and hopefully through mergers because merging with an existing church that's like-minded just adds strength and unity to the kingdom. So we're very open still to, to going south. We're praying a lot about that. You might hear about that more later this year. We're even open to going more north than Northridge or more east or for more west than, than Cactus, but years ago, about 12 years ago, we started, helped start a church in Fountain Hills called, called North Chapel Bible Church, and, and they've grown and become a, a fair-sized church in Fountain Hills, and we've been in discussion with them on what a merger would look like. And the problem that we had early on with them is that they didn't have a facility, they were rented, that would be big enough, watch this, for the eight hundred people here at the Shea campus that are involved at the Shea campus and currently live in Fountain Hills. So we have 800 folks that come all the way from Fountain Hills here to Shea and probably some of the other campuses. And so we said we need a facility that can house that. So you know what we did? We went out and bought one. Uh, this past fall, a church had been empty for about a year in the north end of Fountain Hills, and it seats like three to 400 people. It needs a lot of work, and we bought it for less than what many of you bought your house for. That should make you feel bad. Anyways, we bought it for, for that, because you paid too much for your house is what I'm suggesting. And, uh, but, but no, in all seriousness, it, it, it's amazing, and we got this great deal on this church, so we're bringing these two churches together now, and, uh, and we're gonna be rehabbing this building, and it's gonna be cherry, it's gonna be beautiful, Beautiful, and we're going to be launching it this fall. And we're hoping that the, of the 800 folks that live in Fountain Hills, at least half of them will join us in this. And then some of you that just love startups might consider doing that as well. So we'll be using their existing pastor who we have a great relationship with as well as one of our pastors to be the co-campus pastors there. And so let me introduce you to him and a little bit about our vision and then we're gonna pray. So look up here on the screen. So we're here right now in our worship center and we want to interact a little bit with Bobby Brewer, senior pastor of North Chapel Bible Church. And we could not be more excited about how God has brought the two churches together. Bobby, welcome. Thank you. You know, it's good to be back home in some ways. In many ways, Scottsdale Bible is a part of my story, my spiritual story. I was on staff here way back in the day and met my wife here and we're, you know, we're excited about this. 
The way I see it is we have a very common DNA. North Chapel was founded by mostly people from Scottsdale Bible Church and resourced mostly by people from Scottsdale Bible Church as well financially. And so we have a very common vision. The story of North Chapel Bible Church is gonna continue you know, by enfolding into the Scottsdale Bible Church family. So tell us a little bit, Bobby, about Fountain Hills. It's a really a unique community. It swells to perhaps 26,000 people in peak season, that only about 8% of the people attend church. Wow. Yeah, only wow. 8%. Whereas here in Scottsdale, it's around 18, 19%. So like a lot of times people think Fountain Hills, they think snowbirds, older people, yeah. but it's really not. They have an elementary school, a middle school, a high school. There are, are young families there. It might not be as big as Phoenix proper, but there's a lot of ministry to do to the entire families in Fountain Hills, wouldn't you say? Absolutely, and that seems to be one of the reasons why, you know, it's been hard for us to get traction is because of those young families are looking for, you know, vibrant youth ministries. Yeah. We've interacted with our 800 people that live in Fountain Hills from the Shea campus here. We have found that many of them are just ecstatic that there would be a church coming in to merge with you guys that would be able to prioritize kids' ministry and, and teen because the need is there. Tell us about what you know about Fountain Hills geography and where we've purchased this empty building that we're gonna merge into together. Yeah, you know, I would describe the new property as being kind of like the frontier of Fountain Hills, but it's right on the edge of the town. Uh, as you're heading out towards Rio Verde, it goes right through uh, some federally reserved lands as well as a reservation. Yeah. And so we have two reservations on our borders. I really think we can change that town. We can make a difference. We can make a difference in reaching that community for Christ. I, I would say that God uniquely lifted up Fountain Hills for this time because of the needs that exist there, the ministry that we can have, the opportunity to merge with North Chapel Bible Church, which again, all this knit together as the Lord saying, this is where I want you to go next. We felt led um, in our elders meetings, you know, Acts 15, 28 says, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. And that's how we felt as well. It's like, you know, this, just, this is the answer to our prayers. And I was thinking too, you know, of Acts chapter two, you know, you'll notice that they pulled their resources together for the sake of the kingdom. And that's really what's happening here. That story is taking yeah, place yeah, in Fountain yeah. Hills. We're gonna pull our resources. It's kind of like together, I feel like we'll be able to accomplish much more. Honestly, we are very humbled and honored to come back home to the Scottsdale Bible Church family. So it's really exciting. We're gonna be spending much of this winter and spring and into summer getting the facility ready. We have a lot of work to do there to bring two congregations together, but it's official. They voted in December and we actually officially legally launched SBC Fountain Hills on January 1st of this year. So we're moving on. They're still meeting in their rented facility until we can merge the two congregations together. But we are officially now, they are, under SBC as SBC Fountain Hills, and it's very, very, very exciting. Now, now one more comment before I pray. Um, you know, obviously there's a pandemic raging, and, and culture, have you noticed, is rather tumultuous right now with everything going on. 
And, you know, I remember going through the, uh, the, 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 the recession of 2008, and it was shortly after the recession that we announced our Compelled by Grace vision that many of you were a part of, that, that helped launch new campuses, that also helped uh, Shea become a stronger campus and what have you. And people pushed back at the time. They said, well, you know, I mean, you know, culture's a mess and, and the economy and all that. Is this really a time that the church should be, you know, getting a vision to move forward? And again, I know I live in a different world than you guys, but I just thought, man, we haven't even legalized marijuana and you're smoking it already because the answer to your question is, yes, this is the time that the church should get moving. Did you know this? My dad was born in 1934, and he told me that churches shined during the Great Depression, that people needed churches more in the Great Depression than any other time because people were looking for hope. So this is not a time with our pandemic that the church shrinks, shrinks back or pulls in ranks and said, you know, let's sort of you know, hold our own. No, 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 no. This is a time for you and I to shine. This is a time of expansion. And again, your involvement, your generosity, your prayers are, are, are the key to all of this. But you know, you're gonna probably hear more this year, even more about further expansion as God lifts it up. We are gonna take advantage of that because people need Jesus, amen? People need Jesus. And, you know, our initial vision when we started the whole multi-site thing was it was such a simple idea. We thought, well, if they won't come to us, we'll go to them. And, and that's really what we're doing. We're, we're targeting areas, if you will, or choosing areas as God leads, that, that we're going to places where we can have a ministry as SBC. And again, all of you are a part of this. So uh, no more preamble. We got a lot of work to do in God's word. We only have about 35 minutes left. So why don't you guys bow with me and let's pray and then we'll dive right in. God, I do thank you that you are on the move even when things seem dark. In fact, Lord, we learned at Christmas time with this analogy of light and darkness that Jesus shines brighter as the light when he comes into a world that has hit some really dark times. And Father, it's no secret that many of us are concerned about the culture around us with the pandemic and, and the rise of, of decadence and secularism and what have you. And Lord, we wanna see the kingdom of God shine ever more brightly. And so Lord, do that. Use us in that. And Lord, teach us to be men and women who are sold out followers of Jesus, salt and light, as the Bible says, amidst a depraved generation. And so, Lord, use us that way, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, let's start very personal today, shall we? When I was growing up in a typical good small-town environment back in the Midwest, I, I realized now that I had learned, without even knowing it at the time, to view and classify people those around me, using various lenses that I eventually would question. Let me repeat that. This is where we're going today. I learned as a little guy growing up in a small town outside of Cleveland to, to view and classify the world and others around me using various lenses that eventually I, I would start to push back on. You're saying, what are those lenses? Well, for instance, I would use a physical appearance lens in how I viewed people around me. In my hometown, we had short people, tall people, heavy people, thin people. We had athletic people, non-athletic people. And again, I don't know about you, but we would just classify each other that way, especially in my adolescence. 
And, and so, for instance, I'll talk about this more in a minute. I was very short, and, and, and I was semi-athletic, but incredibly good-looking. And, and people saw me that way. <laughs> And uh, it was in the past, mind you, and they, they would see me that way, and, and, and I conversely then would follow suit and classify them that way. But it just started there. We would then view and classify others based on cultural and societal status. In my hometown, I knew where everybody lived. I knew what part of town it was. I knew what their parents did. We knew what cars they drove. And so Dale's dad was a high school teacher and Kevin's dad worked down in, in Cleveland and was an engineer and Joey's dad, he must have had big bucks because they had the big house on the hill and he drove you know, a Porsche and all that stuff. And, and so we, we knew all that stuff and we viewed each other, even as young people through that cultural societal lens. And then obviously we viewed people religiously. In my hometown, it was predominantly Catholic. So we knew who all the Catholics were. I was rather irreligious, so I was kind of the reprobate. And, uh, and, and, and people knew that. I didn't go to church very often. When I did, I went to a, a liberal Protestant church. We had Jewish people. We saw them as Jewish. And then, of course, race. In my little hometown, it was predominantly white, but the next town over was predominantly black. And then the town beyond that, which had a great sports team, was a mix of African-American and, and Caucasian. And yet we viewed and classified each other that way. And don't get me wrong, this is really important. We didn't necessarily or always judge others by these things, but we did certainly view and classify them by these things. That's gonna be an important distinction as we move on today. It's how we viewed and saw each other, very aware of physical appearance, status, religion, and race. It's hard to escape, even in small town Americana back in the 60s and 70s. And my guess is that many of you can also relate from your upbringing wherever that was. But here's the kicker. As you might have also guessed, there were times too many times, plenty of times, that we used these lens to judge and even belittle others around us. That's the problem with lens, is that if you're not careful in having them and using them, <clears throat> you can use them to judge and even belittle others. <laughs> We'll start with a safe example. I mentioned earlier that when I was in early high school, I was very, very small. And I was seen that way by people. I was four foot 10, 85 pounds my freshman year of high school. And even for a small freshman, I was, I was very, very small. I hadn't hit maturity yet. And, and, and yet people would pick on me for that. They would call me small. You know, I was a song, Short People would come out at that time and they'd sing it when they'd see me. And as a defensive result of that, I would see big people as sort of big, dumb jocks. And I can remember one time I got in trouble in homeroom because I, I was sitting there in homeroom and, and, and Miss, Miss Nelson wrote on the board the word compromise. I don't even know why, just compromise. And this big football player, he's only a freshman, but he must have reached you know, maturity at eight. And, and this big football player leaned over to me and, 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 and he said, what does the word compromise mean? And I looked at him without even thinking and I said, it's compromise, you idiot. And I spent the whole next month running from him. <laughs> See, that's a benign example. Here's the problem, <clears throat> is that then when you bring religion 
and race and other things into that. And you go from viewing and classifying to judging, which we did in the town that I grew up in. Now we've crossed a very serious line. We viewed and classified people through various lenses without even meaning to and even judged them at times. And then I became an adult and simultaneously a Christian. Many of you know my story. I wasn't raised in a particularly religious home and I started seeking in late high school. And on March 11th, 1981, when I was 17 years old, uh, just 40 years ago, I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And I've told you the story before. We don't need to belabor it, but things started to change quickly. It took. God cleaned up my life in many ways and many people were glad, including my parents. And it was at this point this is important for you and me today, that I began to question the lens that I had been using to view others with. Especially now that I was involved with church, I had to, because I was involved with people that, that, that just were very different from me as I went to church when I was 17 or 18 years old. And it's when I coined the phrase, and some of you don't like this phrase, but I don't mean it to be negative. It's just the most realistic thing I can say. It's actually very positive to me. I coined a phrase when I was 18, that if it wasn't for Jesus, I wouldn't be friends with most of you. And it's true. Think about it. I mean, you are not the kind of people I hung out with before I came to Jesus. You aren't. I viewed the world around me through a different lens, and you were way too religious for me. And I would judge you based on lots of other things that would make me want to avoid you. But here's the positive nature of it, gang. We do share Jesus, amen. And as a result of that, and this is what we're gonna focus on today, I see you through a different lens now, a beautiful kingdom lens that causes me to love all of you and like most of you. And so it's a beautiful thing when I say that if it wasn't for Jesus, we wouldn't probably be friends. I don't mean that to denigrate anything between us. It just shows the power of Jesus. You see, it was revolutionary for me as a young man to question the lens that I had been using throughout most of my adolescence, physical appearance and societal status and religion and race, because now I had Jesus and I had a Bible, and I had lots of you around me, and it changed everything. And yet here is also where I began the struggle. With this, we're gonna move on. The struggle that I experienced as a young guy is that I realized not everybody in church was on the same journey that I was. In other words, like so many other things in culture today, I found many people in church that were coming into this place or into their communities of faith and they were bringing those lenses with them. Have you ever noticed that? In other words, I found people in church that didn't seem to treat each other much different than the high school I went to or the country club that, that others belonged to or the watering hole that they went to or their workplace. In other words, they were dragging these lenses into the community of faith and they were viewing, classifying, even judging people based on the old stuff. And I can remember even as a young guy going, that doesn't feel like God to me. That doesn't feel like church to me. And again, I know church is better than the world. I'm not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. It's just that you and I need to be humble enough to admit that we struggle with this at times, amen? We struggle with taking off 
the lenses that our world tells us to use when we come into this place with each other, when we interact with each other and put on the lens that are much more about the kingdom of God. And God wants this for us. And so I've chosen for us to spend the month of January here at SBC talking about the lenses we use to view each other and even those outside the fold. And lest you think this is gonna be kind of a negative thing, it's gonna be incredibly positive in this series. Because the book of the Bible that we're using to guide us over the next three weeks, though having a backstory that's rather dramatic and troublesome, is actually one of the most tender and life-giving letters of all the ones the Apostle Paul wrote. It's the New Testament book of Philemon. Let's pronounce it right. It's not Philemon, it's Philemon. And Philemon is a very, very short book in the New Testament. It's only 335 words in the original Greek, I counted. And it takes less than 10, minute, 10 minutes to read, and that's assuming you read it very slowly. And so you can read it in really five minutes if you wanted to. But it's an intensely personal, and power-packed letter if there ever was one. And we're gonna take a look at the three opening verses here in just a minute, but before we do, let me give you the backstory, because it's really important to understand the backstory of this, this letter, because it will help you understand everything going on in it. It's first century AD, obviously, because it's the New Testament. Jesus has ascended into heaven, and the New Testament church, this is important, is exploding on the scene. It's expanding like we're trying to do today. And, and the, some of you know this, but the New Testament church that began here in Jerusalem, in Israel, initially did not expand east toward Asia. It did not expand south toward Africa. It did a little bit, but initially expanded mainly west. That's where Paul the Apostle initially took his, his missionary journeys. And so here's a map of the expansion of the church way back 2,000 years ago. The dotted lines here represent Paul the Apostle's missionary journeys. And you'll notice here it says Asia. They called it Asia back then. That doesn't mean the Orient. Asia back then was Turkey. So where modern day Turkey is, technically called Asia Minor. And it starts way over here in Tarsus where Paul is from. And Paul Paul visited all these cities and led literally thousands of people to the Lord and started churches in most of these cities. So you have this conglomeration of cities here, which are the seven churches of Revelation that you can read about later. And eventually, Paul got to Ephesus here on the shores of the Aegean Sea and eventually would cross the sea over here to Greece which was called Macedonia back then, and then eventually to Rome where he died. So the expansion went all the way from Israel all the way here into what is now the Middle East and, and Eastern Europe and eventually Western Europe. Now, let's blow this map up here because this is important for the story we're looking at now. At one point in his missionary journeys, Paul stopped at a town called Colossae, where he wrote to them later, the, the Colossians, the people called the Colossians. And in Colossae, he led a guy to the Lord by the name of Philemon. That's gonna be kind of an important name for this book that we're looking at. Philemon was a wealthy businessman. He was very, very successful. And he had a really big house, like some of you do. And we know he had a big house because the church at Colossae would eventually meet in his house and it had dozens of people that would meet there. So just notch that away. Philemon, wealthy business guy, uh, started a church in his house. And then Paul moved on, went to Laodicea, and eventually got here to Ephesus, where he would spend three and a half years. And, and, and we don't have 
never says this in the Bible, but we assume because of Philemon, Paul at some point spent some time in jail in Ephesus. He was jailed regularly by the Roman government for preaching a gospel that was foreign to both them and to the Jewish people. And so he was in jail in Ephesus. Now here's where the story gets rich. And while he's in jail back in Colossae here, one of Philemon's slaves, pause on that one. They had slavery back then. It's an atrocious, atrocious abomination. And Paul's gonna tackle it in this letter. It's been existing for thousands of years, not just black to white as we've experienced in this nation, but from all different types of people that would be enslaved. And Philemon, being a part of the Roman government world, because lots of Romans had slaves, had, a slave, had slaves. And one of them, by the name of Onesimus, decided to run away. And so while Paul's in Ephesus, Onesimus runs away from his slave owner Philemon and he makes his way over to here to Ephesus where he wants to get on a boat to get far away because he knows he's a wanted man now. And here's where the story gets rich. In Ephesus, Paul somehow meets Onesimus and leads him to the Lord. And it's a radical conversion. You'll hear some of the words here in a minute about how real this was for Paul and Onesimus. And at one point, you gotta believe Paul said, hey dude, you know, what, what are you running from? What's the story? And Onesimus unloads the whole thing on him. And he says, and by the way, who is your owner back in Colossae? And he says, this guy named Philemon. And Paul would have gone, I know him. I led him to the Lord. And that's when Paul hatched an idea and said, let's write this dude a letter and let's tell him that this is not what God wants, that this is not how God wants you and, he, you and he to move forward and let's get him to set you free. And that's the whole backstory to, this, to the letter to Philemon where Paul the apostle is writing a very personal letter to him to now ask Philemon, now don't miss this, to view Onesimus as a fellow follower of Jesus and not as a slave and to release him, literally set him free from any obligation he might owe. That's the simple backstory behind Philemon. And the entire letter is all about how Paul does this, the rhetoric and the words he uses and it's where the real power is found because it can have everything today to, do, to do today with you and me and how we view and classify those around us, especially fellow believers in Jesus. It will have everything to do with what lenses we use to see others through. Let me show you. In our time remaining today, we get just about 15 minutes left. I wanna introduce you to the teachings of this letter with one simple but challenging introductory point. And you've probably already guessed the point because I've like been saying it for the last 20 minutes, and it's this, that we can choose, you and I can choose, what lens we use to view others. From the time we were raised as little guys and gals, we've, we've used lenses that the world uses, but now a huge part of our sanctification is a choice. That's what the book of Philemon's gonna reveal to us, a choice that we can now make to use different lenses in how we view others. And so look with me at the first three verses of this letter because it starts talking about this right out of the chute when you look closely. It says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace 
from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you didn't know any better, you'd be tempted to read these three verses, blow by them and say, it sounds like the introduction to all the other letters, right? Like if you've read Ephesians or Galatians or Thessalonians or Philippians, you go, he seems to start the letters the same way. You slow down on that because this is actually different from Ephesians, Galatians, Thessalonians. When you look more closely, it, it, it contains something for you and me that we don't want to miss. In other words, it contains descriptive words and phrases that Paul uses to describe himself as well as all the players that will be mentioned in this letter. It's a very short letter, and yet there's going to be 10 major players mentioned, and he's going to use descriptive phrases for them that show a change of lens that Paul is using. Let me show you. Here's the first thing we need to understand. Right from verse 1, if you were not using any kingdom lens, but just the lens of the world, here's how you would understand Paul, Philemon, and Timothy, who are mentioned there in verse one. You would understand that Paul has no money. He's very poor. He said that a lot. <laughs> he had to, to, to make tents in order to make a living. Uh, Paul admitted he was physically weak. He was not the captain of the football team back then. He, he had bad eyesight. He had thorns in the flesh. He was physically a weaker guy. He was obviously imprisoned multiple times. That's not a good thing. And yet he was an apostle, a spiritual giant, kind of like a, a Christian Yoda. That's who Paul was describing himself to be. He, he was actually caught up into heaven to receive these revelations that gave us the New Testament. He had the gifts of healing, miracles, tongues, interpretation. I mean, it just a powerhouse if there ever was one. But the world would see him as financially poor, physically weak, imprisoned, but they'd also say he's sure got some spiritual stuff going on there. Philemon, as far as how the world would view him, was wealthy. He was a lay leader in a church. He's got this, this new group of Christians meeting in his church, and he was a slave owner, which again was common back then. Timothy, which is for a whole other sermon, was insecure and a burgeoning church leader. He wanted to be Paul the Apostle someday, but he had a really messed up family background, so he was really insecure, and that's how most people saw Timothy. So this is the backdrop of the three main players here in the, in, in, in the book of Philemon. Now notice with me, this is really key. The words and phrases that Paul will use to describe himself and all the other players. Let's whip through this. From himself, he says, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. It's a play on words. He didn't say I'm a prisoner in Ephesus or Rome. I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He's basically saying I'm, I'm in prison physically, but ultimately I'm a prisoner to Jesus and that makes all the difference. Interesting phrase. He uses it nowhere else in the New Testament. Timothy, he says, you're my brother. You're not my disciple. You're, you're, you're not some guy that doesn't have his act together. You're my brother, Timothy. Uh, to Philemon, he's going to use multiple phrases throughout the letter. He says, you're my beloved brother. You're my fellow worker. And then in verse 14, he's going to say, and by the way, you're really good. So it's interesting. He, he doesn't say, you know, you're a wealthy landowner and you got a bunch of slaves. And, you know, no, he says, you're my beloved brother, fellow worker, you're good. Uh, many Bible experts think that Aphia and Archippus are Philemon's wife and son, uh, there's some reasons they think that. It's not for sure, but go with me on it. Aphia, Paul says, you're my sister. And Archippus, this is an interesting phrase, you're my fellow soldier. So he doesn't say, you're, you're Philemon's kid, hope you're doing well. He says, fellow soldier, which literally means, you ready for this? Comrade in arms. 
So he's saying, you're fighting the good fight with me, Archippus. Glad to have you on board. Now, now just pause here right now. Do you notice the lens that Paul is using? The words give it away. He's not buying into the world's system. He's not buying into the world's lens that they use. He mentions nothing about money, status, physical appearance, race, or even religious intensity. His entire description here is kingdom versus cultural. It's really important that you guys see this because I think it's relevant today in the witness that you and I have and even in how we treat each other here. Because then when Paul does get around to describing this runaway slave Onesimus, which is the, really the heart of the story, look at how he describes Onesimus to Philemon. He says, Onesimus is my son, my very heart. He's very dear to me. And then he says, and he's useful to me. It only shows up in the Greek, but Philemon had, to, Philemon had to smile at that point when he read the letter because Onesimus' name in the Greek means useful one. They actually called slaves back then Onesimus, so it could be his name, it could be a description, because again, they, they saw human beings as chattel, as just useful. And Paul's saying, no, 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 you don't understand, Philemon. This guy is a human being made in the image of God, and he is now saved, and he's your brother. He's very dear to me. He's like a son to me in the faith. And then Philemon, he even says, Philemon to Onesimus, here's how you need to see Onesimus. See him yourself as a beloved brother. And then he even says in Philemon, the way I want you to see me is as a partner. You got a lot more money than me. You got better social status than me. But guess what? You haven't been caught up into heaven and been given revelations. But none of that really matters. Why don't you see me as a partner in the gospel cause? Because that's the lens that we need to use. And then if all of this were not enough, and we don't need to look at it today, he wraps up the letter in verse 23 by mentioning four guys, two of which we know about, three of which we actually know about, Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, and he describes them as fellow workers. So add it all up. We're gonna wrap this up here in a second for today. I'm giving you enough to chew on. You have all these players here, no less than 10 of them in this short little letter, from Paul himself, an apostle who was penniless, persecuted, and imprisoned, to Timothy, this insecure, burgeoning church leader, to wealthy and successful Philemon and his entire church, Aphia and Archippus and others, to Onesimus, this runaway slave who's wanted by the Roman authorities, and Paul's not gonna buy into any of that stuff. He essentially abandons the lens that culture uses of viewing and classifying people based on all this other crud, and he chooses a different lens, a kingdom lens. That's all I need you to see today as we start looking at this letter. You can't escape it. Words like prisoner, brother, sister, beloved, fellow soldier, fellow worker, partner, useful, my very heart. You see, Paul's making a point here. He would say it directly to the Galatians in Galatians 3, verse 28, this way, one of my favorite verses. He says, for you are all sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Here it is. He says, therefore, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female because you're all one in Christ Jesus. And again, you gotta understand this passage rightly, folks. Some of you are saying, well, no, there really are male and female, and there really are Jew and Greek. Well, duh, of course there are. 
What he's saying is, is what lens are you going to use in how you view someone who's different than you? Amen. That's what he's saying. He's saying, are you going to see them as a Jew or a Greek, male or female, slave or free? Or are you going to see them as one made in the very image of God and loved by him equal to you in both your messed upness and in your salvation? And start to see them as fellow workers and brothers and sisters and beloved. I love the words he uses here. What lens are you going to use? So just don't miss this. Paul chose a different lens. A lens that blew right through all the cultural and social crud that viewed and classified others by physical appearance, status, religion, and race. And by using this lens, he very intentionally asked Philemon to change lenses as well. And as we're going to see, as we go on in the coming weeks, it's going to have amazing results. Spoiler alert, scholars are pretty sure that Onesimus actually gets set free. In fact, there's even evidence that he became a bishop in the church back then. Imagine that. All because of Philemon changing lenses. Because of Paul challenging the same. And here's my simple point. I think that you and I could learn this lesson better today. Nothing grieves me more, whether Scotts Bible Church or any other church, when I hear somebody say they went to a church and they didn't feel welcome, they felt like a fish out of water, they felt judged, they didn't felt, feel like they belong there. You just need to know as a pastor and a Christian, literally almost nothing hurts me more than that. And part of the reason that it hurts me is because we have a soul here who, who, who needs Jesus, needs to be a part of a community of faith. And, and, and you and I have a choice. And the only reason anybody would ever feel that way, I know, I got their, I know they got their own baggage, but, but we can blow through their baggage. The only reason that they would ever feel that way is if somehow you and I we're looking at what kind of cars are in the parking lot or the kind of clothes somebody might wear to church or what their hair might look like or whether they have tattoos or not or whether they're dressed like me or not. Again, all of that stuff is the stuff of the world. You know, I told you when we started embarking on a journey that would take us years to deal with the racism issue that's going on in our nation I promised you last June that we weren't going to do this like the world. We are not going to use the world's rhetoric. We are not going to be we're not going to be sucked into the world's argumentation here or even their worldview. We're the church for crying out loud. Amen. We have God's word. He is the one guiding us. And it's not as threatening as many of you think. The vision we have here is to develop an egalitarian a community based on equality of all persons. Because there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female. We're all one in Jesus. That's how we need to view each other. And that as we view each other that way, here's the beauty of that, is that whether we win with culture or not, there'll be plenty out there that look at you and me and go, I want that. I don't get that at work. <laughs> I don't get that in the society I live in. I want that. It seems like you have that here. And it all begins with the lens that we're using. Last thought, and then we're going to close this thing up. There are many of you that are going to be tempted to go out of here today 
And again, I, I get it. I've been there. I've been doing this for 40 plus years now. And, and, and you're going to be tempted to say, well, that was a good sermon, Jamie. I wish you had more stories. But that was a good sermon today, Jamie. And, you know, I, I appreciate the word. And I think that I'm doing pretty well on the lens issue. I, I hear Christians say that a lot. My only encouragement to you, and I'm not being hard on you here, is that you need to understand that this lens issue is a lot more subtle than we realize. Here's what I want you to do. I just want you to audit yourself this week. I hardly ever give you homework. But Ed, I want you to do this. And, uh, and Brian, I want you to do this. I won't call any out any more names. But Lou, I want you to do this. I said I wouldn't, but I did. I love you guys. I, I want you to audit your behavior, your thinking this week. And just ask yourself that when somebody either rubs you wrong or you meet somebody new, what lens are you viewing them through? Do you judge their physical appearance? Do you judge their societal status? Do you, are you, are, do you judge their, their religion or if they're a Christian, their religious intensity? Do, do you judge their race, heaven forbid? Do you do that? Because I think it's more subtle than we realize, especially as I've talked to people who feel judged by us. They tell me, I don't even think the Christians realize they're doing it. <laughs> and so just be open. That's all I've ever asked you guys. Just be open. Paul is going to beg. We'll see this more next week. He's going to beg Philemon to just be open. <laughs> be open to this appeal that I am giving you. And I'm so grateful that Philemon is going to be open. I'd like to think you're the same way too. This is part of our journey, the lens that we use. Would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, I thank you for this amazing book that we're going to spend a few weeks in that you saw fit to include in your, in your holy Bible that's gonna teach us what it's like to view others through a different lens. And Father, I pray that as we each are not afraid to audit maybe our own thinking and our own life this week, that you'd speak to us by your spirit and that, Lord, you might reveal tenderly or maybe, Lord, even not tenderly, where our thinking and our view is. And Lord, give us hope that we can choose, we can choose what lens to use. I, for one, Lord, I'm glad that you've had me on a journey where you took me from seeing others in, in such ridiculous ways to now seeing so many people, even those that get in my face, as brother and sister and beloved and fellow worker. And Lord, I pray that we all might start to do that. That's my humble prayer. Work through us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.